James Howard Kunstler, who I will not call Herr Kunstler. And uh, but before I get started, my man, please introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm from New York City, originally born uh, 73 years ago, if you can believe it. I can hardly believe it when I wake up every morning. Um, you know, I went through the New York City school system. Uh, some of it was good. Some of it was uh, like riot and cell block D. Uh, went to, I was a bad student, went to a, a pretty fourth-rate state university uh, campus in the middle of nowhere. Um, worked as a newspaper reporter. Uh, started out at the hippie papers in Boston in the 70s. They don't exist anymore, of course. Um, then started working for daily newspapers. Uh, got a job at Rolling Stone in 74. Um, I only lasted there about a year. I didn't like it. Uh, and I decided it was a time in my life to drop out and write books because that was the programming for somebody with literary aspirations in that time. So I did. I moved back to a place I had lived a while before when I was a newspaper reporter to Saratoga Springs, New York, an excellent small Main Street town, which I loved, especially after growing up in New York City and feeling overwhelmed by it the whole time I was a child, although it had its uh, it had its amenities. Um, and I uh, produced about eight novels, didn't get rich. Uh, I was still waiting on tables when my eighth novel came out, which is, uh, you know, a pretty strange and weird uh, situation. And then I, I went back to journalism uh, by happenstance. I just got a call out of the blue from the New York Times magazine, and they sent me out on a bunch of assignments. Uh, and I, I sold one of the stories that they killed uh, to Simon & Schuster, and that became uh, my first big nonfiction book, which is called The Geography of Nowhere. And it was about the fiasco of suburbia um, and how it was uh, uh, making uh, American life worse and more difficult and, and, and was terribly problematical for our future. And having I wrote two or three books after that about uh, urban design and uh, architecture. And I became affiliated with a new urbanist movement, uh, a group of architects and developers and uh, academics and uh, officials who wanted to reform the way we do land development in America so we could build better places so that we weren't all living in places that were not worth caring about, which was uh, sort of the essence of the suburban problem. You know, we had created uh, 10,000 places across America that were not worth caring about and not worth living in. And um, uh, so... I couldn't fail to notice writing uh, those books that we were probably going to encounter a uh, problem with petroleum as the years went on. And indeed, uh, as a kind of fortuitous thing, in the 90s, a bunch of senior geologists retired out of the oil industry and started publishing their dark and secret thoughts in obscure journals. But that coincided exactly with the rise of the internet and a lot of their dark and secret thoughts found their way onto the internet. And all of a sudden the big conversation about peak oil started. And uh, that got me uh, thinking about things. So I, I ended up uh, writing a book called the long emergency in published in 2005. And that was uh, really about uh, the probability for a great deal of trouble down the road with industrial civilization and, and being able to run it. And, um, 
you know, it took a while for that to catch up with uh, with reality, but you know, now we're there. Um, I, I have written quite a few books since then. I wrote a, a four book series of novels to try to illustrate or depict in a kind of uh, uh, emotional and graphic way what it would be like to live in a post-economic collapse American town. Uh, the first of that series was called The World Made by Hand. And there were three subsequent series, all with the same characters who you know, come in and out of the foreground and the background uh, in the series. And... Um, after that, I wrote a, uh, another nonfiction book, kind of a follow-up to The Long Emergency, called Too Much Magic, about uh, uh, the wishful thinking uh, about technology that really started to gin up after the great financial crash of 2008 and 2009. And, um, you know, I've written a couple of books since then, and, uh, uh, and sort of here we are. Oh, I also, I write a popular political blog called Clusterfuck Nation. I saw that. And I've been doing that for quite a while. You know, I, I've been, my audience has been kind of increasing over the years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, but I've also kind of refined the form of, uh, you know, my version of what a good blog should be. Mm. And I have some basic rules about it. One is, you know, don't ask people to uh, digest too much information or, or simply prose at one time. And so I, I keep it fairly compact. Um, and the other uh, thing is you got to show up regularly. You know, you, you yeah. got to put it out reg absolutely with regularity. Yeah. So people can expect it to be there when they want it to be there. And I do. I never miss it. You know, even during even even through several surgeries I had uh, in the last 10 years, you know, I just got up in the morning, you know, with tubes sticking out of my chest and wrote a block. Yeah. That's that's kind of my logic with this this podcast is one I just have a psychopathic work ethic, but two, I've always you know when I look at like I love Tim Dillon the comedian, and I yeah. listen to him all the time, but he does an episode once a week, so I've listened through his library like three times over. Still laugh my ass off, but mm -hmm. my logic has been I never want someone to be out of episodes, so just flood it with every imaginable topic across the spectrum of every possible guest and do it frequently to the point where they can just dive in and get lost. You know, like when you get yeah. in a hot shower, there's nothing worse, nothing worse than when the hot water starts to run out versus you stay at a nice hotel. If you want to do a 10 minute shower, if you want to do 45 minutes, you are the limiting reagent. You never got to worry about the water, which I guess kind of pulls into, you know, oil and fuel, but yeah. you get, you get the point. So, um, I don't know where I want to go with this. I was going to say fuel, but, uh, about architecture, because uh, I never really get anyone on here that that enjoys architecture. Well, I'll give you this. I'll give you the this basic breakdown right. uh, on how you know how that whole thing worked. You know, I, you know, I, I was writing these stories for the New York Times about. Um, they seem to largely be about the problems that were arising in suburbia and in land development, uh, especially. Uh, the land land development problems in Vermont, which is a rural state. I don't live in Vermont, but I'm only 10 miles away from the state line. And there was a New York Times editor who lived over in Bennington. He's passed away since then, uh, named James Atlas, kind of a well-known uh, literary figure of the 80s and 90s. And um, he wanted me to write about all these uh, problems they were having with overdevelopment in Vermont. And, you know, I've been disturbed by how, uh, you know, how we were living in America since I was a, a kid, you know. Um, 
there was just, uh, I spent three years of my childhood in suburbia, but I spent the best years of childhood in suburbia between the ages of five and eight. Yeah. When you yeah. don't really need a town. Yeah. You don't really need connection uh, to the, even the, the rudiments of adult life and trade and commerce and anything. I mean, my only connection to trade was buying a Coke from a Coke machine in a gas station on my way home from school. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I, um, in any case, I identified this as a, something that was a terrible problem. And, and um, so we've created these places that aren't worth caring about. And uh, they represent a tremendous uh, economic problem, uh, a social problem, a spiritual problem. Uh, you know, in, in any dimension, uh, they're making our lives miserable in America. They've destroyed our sense of community uh, because of the logistics of suburbia. Uh, children are not able to develop their personal sovereignty and moving their carcass from point A to point B by themselves, you know, without the assistance of the family chauffeur. Um, you know, the, the housing subdivisions that people live in are not real towns and they, you know, they often don't even live, know who lives next door to them. Uh, it, it, it's a pretty dreadful situation. And, um, the, the basic problem is that it's a living arrangement with no future because we're not going to have the petroleum to run it. And there really aren't any substitutes for that, at least not now. And, you know, perhaps not ever. We don't really know. I mean, we've got a bunch of wishes that uh, we will be able to run advanced techno-industrial civilizations by other means, but very little evidence that we can, you know, including, uh, you know, we have very uh, uh, highly refined solar and uh, wind technology. But the basic fact is that unless that stuff rests on a kind of uh, foundation of fossil fuel, we're not going to be able to fabricate the hardware for it uh, and run it. And, uh, you know, the situation is somewhat similar with um, uh, nuclear. Uh, you know, you need a kind of fossil fuel platform for that to run off of because you need, you, need uh, you know, diesel fuel and, and natural gas and other things to run the stuff in the reactors, uh, especially when, uh, you know, the reactors are down. And you have to keep, uh, you know, cooling the, the uranium and you have to keep on, uh, you know, managing the, the waste pools and all that stuff. So that's very problematical. So, uh, you know, I came to the uh, conclusion that we're probably going to have to seriously downscale American life and all of the systems that we depend on. Um, it's probably not going to be something that we're going to do voluntarily yeah. and in an orderly way. In fact, that's why I wrote the long emergency because I I concluded that the descent from the the standard of living that we have now is liable to be pretty pretty messy, and uh, was going to entail a lot of losses and all, probably a lot of pain. And um, you know, we're beginning to see the the first uh, real really the first act of this and. You know, in uh, in living color now, uh, we're we're really seeing our systems beginning to get into trouble, and as they do, their failures ramify the other sister yeah. systems that are interdependent with them. You know, you start running into a problem with uh, with uh, uh, energy, for example, with the oil industry. 
uh, there's kind of a basic equation that's useful to know. It may be overly simple, but I'll just say it anyway, that, you know, oil over $75 a barrel tends to uh, crush economies and oil under $75 a barrel tends to crush oil companies. And, and that's sort of where we're at now. You, we've been uh, uh, oscillating back and forth between very expensive oil and ultra cheap oil. And each oscillation produces different um, uh, effects and, and, and different kinds of damage to our society. So now we're in an up cycle where the price of oil is going up. That's going to affect economic activity and especially, you know, anything involved with transport and trucking and all that. We're beginning to see trucking get into all kinds of trouble from other angles. For example, the, um, you know, the rules that have been somewhat foolishly put in place in California, for example, that, that you, you know, you, your, your truck has to be so up-to-date technologically that uh, drivers or, or owners who have a rig that's more than three years old aren't able to do their jobs and use their equipment. And that, that kind of clashes with the financial problem that uh, you buy a giant uh, tractor-trailer, you've got the equivalent of a mortgage to pay on it. You're not going to pay it off in three years. Yeah. You know, it's a big loan. You've got to run that thing for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And if the law says, oh, well, you know, you can't run an old truck anymore, you know, all of a sudden the trucking industry, uh, you know, they, the fleet starts to dissolve. Uh, you're seeing other similarly weird systems uh, collisions and failures in the automobile industry. You know, a lot of people thought that the... Uh, car that mass motoring was going to get into trouble uh simply on the fuel on the basis of the fuel that you use to power the car so the you know the wishful thinking there was well you know if we have a problem with diesel or gasoline we'll just use uh hydrogen or or batteries or you know something else we'll just switch it out and it turns out you know first of all that's that's problematical in and of itself for for technical problems. But it also turns out that that's not what's killing the uh, mass motoring system now. What's killing it is the uh, uh, the terrible trouble that the middle class is having staying solvent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they it, it becomes harder and harder to find enough uh, credit-worthy customers who can buy a car on an extent, on, on a, uh, a long-term loan. Uh, or, you know, who can qualify for a long-term loan. So uh, the car companies have bent over backwards to find new and creative ways to get unqualified buyers to buy cars. And they've got like, you know, seven-year loans on used cars. And that ends up being kind of crazy. And even, you know, in the last couple of years, they've gotten so desperate that when they repo a car from somebody they sold a car to who stopped making the payments, as soon as they repo the car, they offer the guy a new car loan for another used car. So the desperation out there is is pretty deep. So what I'm saying is, of course, is that the, the stress now in the car industry is actually not coming so much from the fuel problem. It's coming from the, the failures in, in our financial arrangements and our inability to maintain a middle class that has enough surplus income to do the things that we've been used to doing for the last 50 or 60 years. So, 
you know, we're faced with all these systems problems. And I don't want to get, you know, fly off into the ether too far. No, but, I, I like it, man. Who, who gives a shit? Keep going. All right. Well, but I just want to say that, you know, th- these issues also ramify into uh, our food supply and, you know, how we're going to uh, continue doing industrial agriculture. And uh, uh, it, it gets uh, pretty deep and, and thick. Is this, do you think everything we're seeing is a natural feedback cycle from Earth? Not not like a conscious thing, but just a, just a natural feedback cycle from, you know, we're expanding exponentially on a finite amount of resources and the the amount of energy per person used is also going up exponentially or has been going up exponentially. Do you think this is just a natural feedback system that, you know, only a supercomputer could could understand, but nonetheless... Well, it's, there's no question that it's a feedback system. Well, and, but well, my but, question is, is, is it natural, or do you think that any amount of this is engineered by, and not, not myself to float off, but is there a group of people that are going, hey, we're running towards a cliff. We don't need well, the look, Kissinger. There's we, a don't lot need, of, we don't need the useless eaters. Yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of sentiment about that. Uh, well, there are two things that you're saying there, for, for, uh, and, and I'll include something that you didn't necessarily imply, but, but you know, just for the heck of it, um, you know, the idea that the Earth itself is a self-correcting organism, yeah. you know, that's kind of the Gaia theory yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, J- of James Lovelock. I don't know, you know, I don't know what I think about that, actually, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, uh, could be, you know, maybe, but, you know, we're going to go through this stuff that we're going through, whether that's true or not. Whether it's a conscious self-correcting thing or whether yeah, it's just yeah. a bunch of matter bumping around, it's the same system. Yeah. I mean, we do know that, the, you know, that, uh, that there are uh, effects of causes and, and that, uh, you know, th- there is a certain kind of basic fundamental physics involved. And you're correct that we're living in a finite, a planet of finite resources. That's well-established. And there are many arguments and many, many well-known people who make those arguments now, including, you know, Chris Martinson and Gail Tverberg and, you know, other people who have been in the uh, Paul Peak Oil discussion for the last 15 years. And we know about all that. Whether or not there's some clack of James Bond villains out there like Klaus Schwab, Klaus Schwab, Klaus Schwab, and uh, Bill Gates. You know whether they're you know trying to throw a, a, a wrench into the machinery of civilization is another question. It seems like I they are, are, man. I, 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 to me, I think the more complex a conspiracy, the less likely. Like Manhattan Project was pretty insane in itself. Like I get that stealth technology nuclear subs. I mean, there's a lot of complex stuff out there. Yeah, but there weren't conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, kind of they were. I mean, they they were all conspiring together. But to me, it's almost a little too convenient, isn't it, that the World Economic Forum, like, all of a sudden there's just this evil German guy who, like, dresses in all black. Yeah, that's why he's a James Bond villain. That's what I mean. But doesn't it almost seem kind of out of central casting? Like, something's not... Exactly. Something's not... They even... I they even know. put a Persian cap on his uh, Persian cat on his lap. That's you what, know? I, but that's what I mean. Is like you know, you see the president. Everyone's like, it's just a figurehead. It's the military-industrial complex and the Iron Triangle. Those are the ones that run it. I see Klaus Schwab, and I'm like, this is too convenient. He's too convenient of a of a figure that we can all hate and agree upon, and then we hate him, and then we don't do anything because we go, there's the guy, 
he sucks. Well, he's exactly the kind of character that Hollywood created that, would create that, if they were going to make a movie about exactly. what we're going through. Sure. What do you think about all that, man? Is the World Economic because they seem to? I mean, they're pretty open about you know their ability to to penetrate every every nation's government, which I don't think is really a unique idea. I think that's probably been going on since. Well, the it's hard time. to believe that some schmuck like Klaus Schwab just, sitting over there in Switzerland, got, he just got it controls done. the world. And that's what I mean. Is like, I mean, it, it is weird, but I'll tell you, you know, the, the problem that I'm having is that uh, so much of this behavior, this insane behavior that we're seeing around the world in the response to the COVID virus seems so coordinated. Yeah that it, it's hard to figure how it could be that coordinated. Yeah. Um, it may be as simple as, you know, the, the mass formation uh, theory yeah. that, you know, it affects nations as well as individual human beings. Yeah. And there may be something to that, but it is so deeply irrational. It's really, it's really breathtaking. So uh, to answer your question as simply as possible, I find it difficult to believe that there's a Klaus Schwab... Uh, you know, James Bond villain conspiracy out there. Yeah. I do think Bill Gates is a sinister, a sinister character. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, one wonders why uh, he hasn't been in front of a Senate committee lately. Yeah. You know, and it seems like he's got a lot to answer for. But of course, you know, the Joe Biden administration is running, uh, you know, the, the, the party of chaos, the Democratic Party is running the government machinery. And so they're not going to... Uh, uh, probably address anything serious. So I don't know. There, there are many things that are going on now that I would have thought very unlikely earlier in my lifetime. I, I never would have imagined that uh, that a situation could be engineered to allow such a, an unfit person as uh, Joe Biden to sit in the White House. Arguably, I'd say... He's not in charge. Well, of course he isn't. Uh, arguably, you know, I'd say that Donald Trump was not exactly a fit for office either, um, temperamentally. Sure. You know, I uh, I didn't vote for him in 2016. I did vote for him in in uh, 2020 because well, same as, same I, as I disliked. I didn't do 2016, but I did 2020. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was so opposed to what the Democratic Party represented that um, I just thought, you know, you got to vote against them. But I, I have felt over the last five years since Donald Trump jumped on into the scene that, you know, he was a less than really desirable figure uh, to run the country because he was so childish. Yeah, you can't. There is something to be said about being presidential. And I know it sounds like such a pearl clutch. And I know, I know the counter argument is tell that to the people who don't have jobs because of NAFTA, they don't give a shit how childish someone is. If well, they the, yeah, sure, it's true. Sure, I get it. And, and I would say that he was, there are a couple of things I would say in his defense, even though uh, I wasn't altogether happy with him being president, I'd say that, you know, I agreed with the, many of his policies. Sure. Uh, and um, uh, I thought that he was uh, rather brave and, and terrible and very resilient, considering the abuse that he was subject to. I mean, uh, very unfair. And, um, you know, that, that's a whole subject in and of itself. But, you know, on the whole, I would like to see somebody else um, represent the opposition to the party of chaos now. I, I mean, I would I would say, I mean, I, I also think Trump was funny. There's, there's just, he was. there's he just was a child. Amazing. There's just the child in me. That's also like he's just kind of funny. That being said, 
I would say there are probably three, three objective things that I would I would sign off on. Right, withdrew us from the the TPP, the Trans Pacific Partnership, as soon as he got into twenty, as soon as he got in office. Mm-hmm. No new wars. He didn't end them. Mm-hmm. No new ones. All right. And uh, energy independence. Those are three objective things that I, I think are. Yeah, although I think the the energy independence thing was kind of a. You think it was uh, a, a, a phantom a, a, a illusory. It was illusory. Uh, yeah, because you know, the whole shale oil thing in itself was. It wasn't exactly a scam, but it was. Uh, it wasn't quite what it seemed to be to many people, and. Uh, I'm sorry to say that, you know, most of America doesn't really understand how shale oil worked and what it was about. But, you know, it it really came on. We had horizontal drilling and fracking technology for a long time before the shale oil miracle came along. The difference was they used to actually use uh, explosives. Hold on. You're good. You can take it. Hold on a sec. Who's this? You're quite all right. Fuck you. Fuck you. Um, Some fucking robot. Anyway, I'm going to start that over again. I'm going to start that module. That was Schwab. He's trying to interrupt. That was Klaus. That that fucker's trying to interrupt. Fuck you, Klaus. He's he's and he's knocking on my door. He's trying to get. He wants to come in. He can take his. Fuck you and the Schwein you rode in on. <laughs> that that German. The Schwein on that, that German asshole dude. His uh, what is? Wait a minute. I want to finish. This okay, the thought. shale oil. The shale oil. We'll we'll get back yeah. to Klaus. Yeah. So shale oil wasn't what uh, most Americans think it was. Um, starting around 2009, it really ramped up. You know, we had all this great technology. We knew how to do fracking. We were doing it with explosives before that. And now we discovered we can do it with uh, high pressure water mm-hmm. and, you, you know, use granules of sand to hold the fractures open. And you, uh, you know, you blast open this uh, impervious rock where the, the the oil doesn't move through it as it does through a regular sandstone. And, uh, you know, you get shale. Here, here's the deal. Uh, conventional oil wells of the, you know, the kind that we had in Oklahoma in 1950, you know, they produced, uh, they cost about $400,000 in today's money to drill a well. They produced thousands of barrels a day for decades. And uh, they were like cash registers. Yeah. But shale, shale oil wells cost between 6 and $12 million a well to drill and, and frack out and everything in service. And they produced maybe, you know, 100 or 200 barrels a day for the first year. And then they fall by 60%. And then after three years, they're done. So it's a very, very different kind of profile and a different kind of uh, investment return. And the problem with shale oil was that uh, it didn't make any money. We, you know, we, we were living in this strange financial in- environment of zero interest rate, uh, uh, of zero interest rates. And so people were desperate to find investments that would yield more. And uh, shale oil seemed to be one of them. So they, they piled into that, provided hundreds of billions of dollars of capital to the shale producers who went out and drilled a whole lot of wells and fracked them and goosed the oil out of the ground, you know, and especially out of the sweet spots, which had not been exploited before. They were, they were the new sweet spots in the shale. And we produced a well of a lot of oil. So that, you know, between 2009, 2019, we finally got up to surpass the old 
conventional oil peak of 1970, which was just under 10 million barrels a day. By 2013, we were producing, excuse me, by 2019, we were producing 13 million barrels a day, roughly. And I think about six or seven or eight of that was shale. Uh, our conventional wells continue to decline the whole time. Uh, and so they, they really produce this miraculous uh, uh, production of surpassing the old 50-year-old peak of oil. The problem was that they couldn't make a red cent doing it. Yeah. And then, you know, with, uh, and I'm not even sure that it matters that, that the COVID thing intervened. Um, it might have happened nonetheless. But um, uh, having proved that they couldn't make any money, they had, they all of a sudden had trouble attracting new finance. So now it's much, much harder for the shale producers to get new financing to continue the same operations that they were doing before. And now that they've exploited many of the sweet spots in the Permian Basin and Bakken and elsewhere, um, there are fewer speed, sweet spots left for them to exploit. So the quality of the, of the uh, resource is going down. And so based on those two things alone, you know, the lack of financing and the, uh, the uh, disappearance of good places to drill, and also the, the rapidity of the depletion of each well and the cost of drilling, I'd say that we, you know, we are definitely on the downside of shale oil. And there's no way that we're going to get back to anything like energy independence. It was, a, it was a, a, an illusion and it was a stunt and it lasted a few years and now it's over. It's, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, it's like never drinking coffee and then taking a caffeine pill at midnight and saying, I have sleep independence. And it's like, it's, it's a window. It's like the, the next guy, whether you like him or not, is going to look like he fucked it all up. In reality, he's just crashing from a system that's far larger than anyone president or any one nation, really. It's a, and Mr. Trump was lucky because he came into office in 2017 just before shale peaked. And he got two more years of you know, wave, zero caught a interest. Good wave. Yeah, zero interest financing. And, you know, so by the time, uh, you know, he was being persecuted for Russiagate in <coughs> 2018, um, you know, we were also at peak uh, oil production at the, at the, the final peak. So... That's where we're at with that. And uh, it probably means because our conventional wells are also depleting and because we're entering a period now of uh, probably of capital scarcity as we get in deeper and deeper into financial disorder that is coming now bubbling up as a result of a lot of perverse activity over the last 20 years, you know, including quantitative easing and, you know, the the uh, central banks buying all the securities that nobody wants and, you know, and, and all the trouble with debt and bonding and all that stuff um, has created a, a tremendous set of distortions in the financial markets that are going to have to be worked out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the word, the term workout actually implies a great deal of pain. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're going bank, bankrupt in a company or personally, you go through a workout with a bank. And that means that, you know, you lose a lot of your assets and you come out the other end poorer than you went in. Yeah. 
So yeah. that's where we're at with that. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, it's, um, what I want to say is, uh, have you read, have you read a uh, private empire by Steve call about Exxon mobile? No, I think you'd enjoy that. Um, I think you'd enjoy that a lot. So for the bubble of finances though, it's got me thinking again to Tim Dillon, the comedian. He has, he had this guest Ray Kump who, uh, who's, who's just like, he's, 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 he's he's pretty brilliant. I mean, he's just there's like this fat animal with a lisp, and it's hilarious. But he, he's also brilliant. But he had this good point where he goes, you know, it's not backed like the dollar's not backed by gold, right? I mean, with FDR with Nixon or FDR with the uh, uh, was a uh, Bretton Woods conference and then Nixon closing the gold window. Well, he was dead when that happened. But you know, I think Harry Truman was president when Bretton Woods. Bretton happened. Woods and then Nixon, FDR yeah. and then and then Truman and then Nixon. Right, closing. Well, what gold. happened was that uh, FDR confiscated gold. Yeah, and, yeah, admitted illegal for everyone to own. Yeah, and and, and really um, kind of ended the the relationship uh, between you know gold and the dollar. Well, I don't know. You could say Nixon did too in 1971 um, when he when all these other nations uh, started to get nervous about whether there was any gold in in Fort Knox, and they started demanding withdrawals. It started with the French actually under De Gaulle. And uh, that spooked Nixon, and he closed the gold window, and so that ended for good, the relationship between gold and the dollar. Which Ray Kump the, uh, brings up. He goes, what is it backed by? And the reality is, he goes, it's, it's backed by the gun. It's backed by the U.S. military, the biggest, baddest military in the history of yeah. the world. Otherwise known as the full faith and credit of the United States. But, hey, you uh, say one way, well, I say it the other. You say fear, I, I say love. Well, I fear. left out the last part. The full faith and credit or we'll kick your ass. The full faith and credit, the, uh, the hey, make payments and we'll make sure nothing happens to your business. Capiche? That kind of yeah. full faith. Hey. But, hey, yeah, but, but, I mean, it makes me think of Mark Bowden, in, uh, who wrote Black Hawk Black Down. Black Hawk Down. Yeah. I mean, he talks in the beginning about how, you know, we have these progressive values in society, but he goes in the vast majority of the world, power flows from the barrel of a gun. And that is, that is our base instinct. We can do this quantitative easing. We can do this formal relations. What does it all come down to? It comes down to who can kick the shit out of everybody and for better or worse. I mean, I, I love the United States. I'm very biased towards it. But just like let's let's detach ourselves from it. It's who has the most when it all goes to shit. It's who has the you know in a post apocalyptic world. It's who has a compound and a bunch of ammo, food, water, and antibiotics. So well, even short of even short of an apocalyptic world, this is basically a world full of organisms who are in constant competition for the resources at hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I it can it get as, ugly. I use it as as an extreme example. But what yeah. is what the extreme example shows is what the actual foundation is. Once we get rid of, once we burn off all the fog of, ah, hey, we got the markets and there's crypto and NFTs. What it really comes down to is, yeah, we need protein, carbohydrates, and fats. We need H two O. We need multi. We need vitamins and minerals. We need a certain level of uh, health care and basic basic care, as well as um, as well as shelter and to stay away from the elements, not die of exposure. That's what it, that's what it really is, right? We're a bunch of meat machines with uh protoplasmic uh computers that's what it is like cut it all out that's what it is as it seems like we're kind of burning off the the formalities of what we're doing because we're being forced to you know 
with oil scarcity, with pandemics, whether real or, or created or, you know, an upcoming war or already going on war if that escalates. I mean, are we what what we see is at a certain point, does the mask just fall off when we realize there is a limited amount? And do we just go? We have, we have in the post-apocalyptic world, you have your you have your bunker, your fortress. And I come up to you and go, Jim, I really need some food, man. When a push comes to shove and you're sitting behind a belt fed machine gun and a moat and you're going, no, I'm taking care of my loved ones. Now I'm going, but it's not, not, and you just blow me to pieces. Is that what we're going to see? Are we going to see the barbaric face of true organic creatures vying for resources? Is that what we're going to see? And in which case, was it the smartest thing ever? This is just one hypothesis to go into massive amounts of debt, building up the biggest military ever, so that when the money system did fall, we have we have the barrel of the gun, for, for better or worse. Do you think that that's what it's going to be, is who has the biggest weapons when push comes to shove? Well, I don't think, it, you know, I don't think we're heading into anything like a Mad Max world, which would be probably an extension beyond even the situation you're talking about. Is there, is there liable to be conflict? Well, there's a pretty fair possibility that there'll be conflict between the great powers. Um, but I, I, you know, I, and uh, I would kind of dread that outcome. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Um, you know, we're beginning to see a situation now in Ukraine where, mm-hmm. where uh, it, well, we're in the fog of war and it's very hard to, uh, put the picture together with the kind of propaganda that we're subjected to at the moment. But uh, I think that there's something else in the background, which uh, I might have mentioned at the very beginning, that um, the real uh, pressing dynamic before us is going to be the need to uh, downscale uh, civilized life, uh, simplify it, and localize it. That's the macro trend, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where we're heading one way or another. Now, whether the journey there is terribly disorderly and violent is one question. Um, I think that there's a chance that a lot of things might fall apart in a way that they won't, it won't necessarily lead to widespread violence of the kind that you're describing. But... Uh, rather, uh, uh, just uh, simply our systems won't operate very well. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're going to find ourselves kind of marooned in our own little islands of, of civilization or less than civilization uh, to work it out locally as we can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with questions like, can we maintain these giant electric grids? Um, how transient is this phenomenon that we call the internet? Now, everybody assumes that the internet's a permanent installation in the human condition. You know, to me, I think it's, you know, it's such a, comp- it's such a complex uh, set of arrangements that I would expect that it would be among the first things to go Absolutely. down. It's the so, most, it's uh, the most delicate. So, you know, I wouldn't make any assumptions. So, you know, like when I hear people talking about Bitcoin and uh, I think, okay, that's great. How are you going to access your wallet, you know, when there's no, when the internet's not working? There's an EMP or, or a coronal mass ejection. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to get that bad. I mean, all you really Just need. Just the internet down. 
Well, yeah. Or you need, you know, you, you, all you need are, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, interruptions in the service. Uh, if you're living in a culture where the electricity is only on for four hours a day, and there are plenty of countries where that happens, you know, uh, we tend to call them third world countries, but it, it nonetheless is true, you know. Um, you know, what if that becomes the case in uh, advanced countries? I mean, you, you know, Germany right now is in this ridiculous situation where in order to, to pretend to play along with the United States and and uh, support this uh, fic fictitious construction <laughs> called NATO, you know, they have to deprive themselves of the chance of being able to heat their houses and eat hot food, you know, indefinitely into the future. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so insane. But the fact of the matter is they really don't have any energy resources to speak of of their own. Mm -hmm. They have some coal. They got the remnants of what used to be a pretty good coal supply, but it's not what it used to be. They get their gas and their oil from Russia. And if they want to start a fight with Russia and not get Russian gas... They're going to sit in the cold and eat bratwurst, uh, cold bratwurst in a dark room. Yeah. So, you know, you could see that going on, uh, you know, in, in many European countries in, you know, six months from now. Now, actually, I'm going to do to you what I do to most of my guests. Uh, you're going to monologue as I go to the restroom and I'll be back in 30 seconds. Welcome to uh, Kunstler Cast. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure how to proceed here without any prompting. Uh, I'll just wait for uh, Tommy to come back and look at the chickens outside. They're out behind my office window here. Three of them scratching around, trying to have fun on a cloudy day. Not too cold out there, about 34 degrees. And uh, everybody seems happy. No hawks coming down. No possums or raccoons out there for the moment. Don't hear you monologuing. Yeah, I, I, I really uh, you froze up. I didn't have a, I didn't have a prepared monologue. Nobody so. does, and I do that to them. It's not planned. I just have to go to the restroom, and so well. Well, if a it, man's got to do what a man's got to do. Well, listen, if it, if it, uh, if there was no monologue, uh, I don't want to hear anybody bitching. It's not live, so just hit fast forward by thirty seconds. I don't I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Are you going to edit this? Aren't you? Not that. No. Yeah. No. Really? Yeah, just dead mic. No, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I don't. So the problem with being permanently banned from YouTube is I can only upload to Rumble, BitChute, and Odyssey, who have a max file size of four gigabytes. With Zoom, if you take, let's say, this, what, an hour-long discussion will probably be about half a gig. If you mm -hmm. then take it and splice something out of it and then stitch it together in any movie editor, it magically somehow goes up to about five gigabytes. God damn it. It's the dumbest. I don't understand it. So if I was still on YouTube, I'd splice it out, which I normally did. But because I got to keep it under, 
I don't know, man. Whoever the audio, the Spotify version will be spliced out. But uh, anyway, watch well, that. let me let me ask you a question. <laughs> uh, I, I personally don't have time to watch video podcasts that much. I never watch. The, the ones that I listen to, I just listen to the audio. Yeah. So why not just go to audio? Just you know, yeah. just get yourself out of the picture. You know, we yeah. don't have to see you flapping yeah. your gums. You don't need to see my stupid face. Well, some people. You're stupid. My stupid fuck. It just turns into an insult. This dipshit. And you're like, all right, let's take it. This asshole in a leather chair. Fuck this guy. You're like, oh, <laughs> damn man. Some... I think maybe you're Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab. In your leather chair, Do you have a Persian cat on your lap. You or nothing, you'll be happy. It's I'm already happy. I'm happy now with the things I do own, Klaus. That's right. I got a lot of much. shit. Yeah, yeah. I like what I have now, Klaus. But some people love. They just love to watch. I never. Watch. I don't watch anything. I listen. I don't need to watch shit. I yeah, listen because I'm always doing shit. Me, you know? yeah. That's why I can't. I can barely read. That's not true. I can read fine, but I listen to audiobooks because I gotta do shit, dude. I can't sit down. I gotta go do laundry. I gotta go get groceries. I gotta. I listen to audiobooks. Go to the gym and go do stuff. Yeah, well, I'm doing stuff even more down to earth, man. I'm on this three acre homestead with gardens and oh, chickens and and fruit trees, and I'm constantly nice. like. It's, you know, I mean, I did it because of what I was writing about. I thought, well, you know, maybe I ought to like get onto a place where I could grow my own food and stuff. And I found this cool property that was uh, literally like uh, an eighth of a mile from the last street in the little town that I live in. And uh, I live in this old factory village, uh, like a New England factory village on a tributary of the Hudson River Mm -hmm. in in far, far upstate New York, near the Vermont border. And, um, uh, you know, I found this three-acre three place 11 feet outside the village tax district. <laughs> so it's an extra $1,000 a year I don't have to pay. You but, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to uh, get a little homestead going. And uh, put, I put in the garden. It's pretty substantial. And I got the chickens going. And I planted about 30 fruit trees and, you know, blueberries, currants, gooseberries, grapes. And uh, all that stuff is cool theoretically, but what it turns out you have to attend to all of it. Yeah, but see, that's that's what I would lo- that's what I would like. I mean, I'm single. I don't have kids. I don't have pets. I don't have debts. I'm in a tiny apartment right now, trying to turn the pot. Right now, the main endeavor is I have to get this big enough to make money. Dude, I don't I don't want to go towards the city. I want to go even farther. I'm not in a big place now. Where are you exactly? I'm in Maryland, and it's. I'm in a, I'm in a, like a somewhat, well, I guess I'm going to move soon. So it doesn't matter. I'm in Salisbury and, uh, Oh yeah, I know where that yeah, is. I'm going to, I'm going to move uh, probably in the next month or so. So I'm not worried about any psychopaths. Um, but I mean, I look at like, you know, like where my parents are, they're in new England. They've got all the, fire, uh, they, they've got all the firewood Well, for their own privacy, I won't say, but they've got uh-huh. all their own. F- I don't think they give a shit, but I'd rather err on the side of, They've got all their own firewood. They've got solar. They've got diesel. They've, you know, they're growing stuff now. They, you can go outside. You could shoot a deer every day for the next five decades. It's like, that's what I look at. And I'm like, to me, that is more attractive than any like LA penthouse or something. Cause I look at where the world's going in my short life. Yeah. I look at where things have been going since. Really, when I started this podcast, December 2019, I think the day before COVID hit the U.S. Oh, man. Yeah, bad luck. And I look at it and I'm like, 
oh, this is all so fragile, so fragile to me. And I've had on tons of military guys who have retired and they've gone out to the middle of nowhere. They've done the podcast and they're like, yeah, they're like, I just tend to my farm all day. Like, that's all I do. And they're like, but it's entirely self-sufficient. Yeah. And you said you got to tend to it. But I also like I do this podcast entirely by myself. I schedule, I edit, I produce, I do everything. Yeah. I like it. I like doing laundry. I like making my bed. I like I like making dinner. To me, there's a sort of peace tending to the quote unquote farm. Yeah, I, li- I like being real busy myself. And, and I have the other um, added uh, amenity of being able to walk into town. I can be on Main Street in, uh, you know, eight minutes. But the problem is the town's real beat. Yeah. And now I do have a theory about how this is working out. Um, and it goes sort of like this, I, you know, and I get this from having written three books about urban design and, and hung out with architects and developers for, for all those years I was writing about that stuff. But the big cities are definitely in trouble. The, the business model for a skyscraper city is broken now. Uh, the, you can't run a 60 story office building at 30% occupancy and cover your taxes and your mortgages and all of the things that are entailed in that. So that's, that's a big problem. And uh, just basically um, the great metroplex cities of America have exceeded their plausible scale and they're going to have to contract. Now they're not going to disappear. Most of them because the, most of them occupy important geographical sites Probably all of them, really, one well, yeah, way or another. Yeah. But but some of them are, you know, they're, they're not all equally important. So, you know, a place like Detroit, which uh, occupies a strategic site on a river between two great lakes, will continue to be an important place. It'll never be the city of 1950 that it was, again, and as far ahead as you can see. You know, New York City has the best uh, harbor in the, on the East Coast, maybe, arguably, and there are some, there are a lot of other good, really great harbors. But you know, New York City is going to have to get smaller. Plus, it's overburdened with megastructures and skyscrapers mm-hmm. that are not going to be uh, the, the the business model for running them is going to fail. By the way, the residential skyscraper must be thought of as an accessory to the office skyscraper. So, if the office skyscraper is failing as a business model. The residential skyscraper is going to fail too. Well, the residentials are for money laundering. Well, <laughs> but, offshore yeah, money. <laughs> partly, partly, but you know they weren't at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really, what happened was, uh, well, you know, uh, I grew up in a uh, massive seventeen-story uh, Manhattan apartment building that occupied uh, the at least a quarter of a big block on the east side of Manhattan. And it was built in 1929 or so. And, you know, it was owned by uh, the the developer who built it for 35, 40 years. And they collected rents. And that's how they maintained that building. You know, the the income, the revenue from the rents. That's what paid it. But by the 1970s, we had entered this uh, phase of history where all of a sudden we were turning every megastructure into a condo. Mm. And uh, that's called deconstructing the rights of real estate, where you have a building with 100 units. And instead of it being one tax unit or one ownership unit, you break it up into 100 ownership units. And then you uh, form a property owner owner's association to manage all that. 
The problem with that is that it worked real great as you're going up the mountain of debt and getting into a more indebted country every year for 50 years. But when you reach your maximum debt problem and uh, you have to start going downhill on debt defaults, that whole condominium structure falls apart. Because it, it takes very few property owners to default on their, uh, uh, their, their apartments to wreck a homeowners association. So that's going to be a problem. Um, suburbia is going to be a complete write-off. Most of it was built out of shitty materials anyway. Yeah. That were not destined to last. You know, the, especially, ex- actually the shittiness of the materials has accelerated over the last 50 years. So yeah. that, you know, the materials were semi-shitty when, when they built Levittown out of, you know, two by fours and sheetrock. But now they're building, uh, suburban mech, mech houses out of strand board and, uh, vinyl, right? So they're basically made of plastic and glue and sawdust. Yeah. You know, they're not going to last. Uh, all these tilt-up uh, strip mall buildings, you know, the muffler shops and the mm-hmm. fast food joints and all that crap, that's not going to last. So, you know, and, and of course, it requires this massive, you know, mass motoring system in order to make tr- uh, uh, suburbia work. Yeah. So it's totally toast. So where are people going to go? Well, first of all, they're going to need to be near a place where they can get food. And what I think you'll see is that uh, as we were, we were speaking much earlier about uh, systems failures ramifying each other, you know, we're, we're going to see the fossil fuel failures start to ramify the food system, uh, the industrial agriculture system, where, you know, you have these gigantic 4,000 acre farms and, uh, their biggest inputs are, you know, Water. Uh, herbicide, fertilizers, and their other biggest input is borrowed money yeah. in order to get those crops in. So if all of a sudden you find yourself living in a uh, uh, financial climate where capital is getting scarcer um, and it's harder to borrow money, then that financial model that business model for doing farming is not going to succeed. And I think, you know, the bottom line is we're probably going to see farms having to also contract, get smaller, be managed at a smaller level with more human attention and less mechanical stuff and less fossil fuels and probably less uh, uh, fossil fuel-based herbicides and fertilizers and all of that. You know, we're going to have to go back to something that, that is quite different from what we're doing today. So the bottom line is the action in America is moving from the big cities and the suburbs to the small towns in places that have a meaningful relationship with farming. So we, <clears throat> we've just been playing a, a global game of, of, of resourcing capital musical chairs and uh, music might yeah. stop soon. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah. Well, it's, it's turned from a game of musical chairs into a Chinese fire drill. Yeah. 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 Um, on the note, cause I, I actually, I do love skyscrapers have since I was little. Don't know why. I fucking hate them. Oh, all right. Well, this pie. Well, I grew up know. among them, you know? Well, I see I didn't. So I yeah, loved, there you go. I loved, loved reading about, I mean, the first ones in Chicago. I loved the Chrysler building, the Empire State building, 40 Wall Street. Well, there's something magnificent about them, you know, and especially the early ones. They're, they're you know, when you're... cathedrals. There are modern, it's the same awe yeah. that people in the 1500s saw. 
Well, when you look at something like the Woolworth building in Manhattan, oh, you know, and, and these magnificent skyscrapers from the first decades of the yeah, 20th century, beautiful. you know, they're just, they're amazing. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, when, when you get into the 1960s and the modernists have come in and, and really every new building is just a, an it's aluminum shit. box, it's you know, with, uh, with glass curtain walls. Yeah. You know, what you're seeing there is simply nothing more than uh, maximizing the amount of rents you can get off the footprint of a building. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean the footprint of a building is the, the, the lot that you're building it yeah. on. If it's 100 feet by 100 feet, you know, what do you want to do? Just put a five-story building up and collect those rents or put up a 60-story building and collect 60 stories worth of rents? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the decision for many would be obvious if, that's, if you had the means to do that, if you had the capital to do that. And if, uh, you know, you can do it under the rules. So that's what happened in Manhattan and, and other, you know, downtowns. But yeah. there are a few places in America that did it, you know, the, uh, the way Manhattan did it. Chicago is a kind of second, but, you know, it's pretty well, far behind. Well, Manhattan was just the perfect storm of that burgeoning city and on, on an island, for all intents and purposes, on, on an island. Like, so there yeah. was truly... You could only sprawl so much. Yeah, you could make bridges, but everyone wants to be on the island. And then you have that problem with the bedrock between lower and upper Manhattan. So you get these like hyper condensed sections, midtown and lower. It wasn't a problem. It was actually an advantage because uh, it made great foundations. You know, they, they were going well, the, into well, the big gap uh, in skyscrapers between lower and midtown is because well, the yeah, bedrock's actually even lower there. Yeah. But okay, I take your point. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but, but like you know, something like the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building, the Woolworth, like they're beautiful. They're also going to last. They're made out of limestone, right? I mean, granted, they have steel internals. But... Well, no, there's, there's, there's. I think there's, there's steel skeleton buildings for yeah. sure. But uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the problems we're going to run into is that uh, the cat. First of all, the business model for those buildings has failed, but. But uh, we're also going to have problems with modular fabricated building materials to even renovate them. Mm. You know, they do have to be changed out every, uh, you know, 30 years or so. I saw a kind of vision of the future 10 years ago when I went to Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. It was really kind of, it was certainly interesting and kind of creepy. Um, When apartheid ended in South Africa, all of the corporate tenants in downtown Johannesburg left and built kind of fortified suburban office campuses because they were kind of afraid of how things were going to turn out. And uh, I'd say Johannesburg is kind of comparable to downtown Denver in scale. You know, the number of blocks and the number of skyscrapers, if you need an image, it's about like that. So when I went there, the skyscraper office buildings had all been abandoned. They were occupied by squatters who were living in these like 40-story walk-ups without elevators, you know, without any services. They had never really reconfigured the insides of the buildings for living. You know, they still had one bathroom on every floor. And I don't, you know, I doubt the bathrooms were even working. Yeah. Um, it was just the most bizarre thing. So you're in this old downtown that has turned into kind of a sci-fi yeah, uh, uh, you know, wasteland of abandoned office buildings, you know, with squatters in them. And it was just the craziest thing. So I don't know if that's exactly, you know, where we're going in the U.S. Um, 
you'd think maybe from from seeing what's go, what goes on in San Francisco that that might be the next thing for San Francisco. Yeah, but who knows? It's yeah. I'm friends with a Delta Force guy that is doing security. Retired Delta Force guy that's just doing security in San Francisco right now. He sends me pictures. I think he's just getting paid through the ass, and uh, he's sending me pictures. It's disgusting. It's genuinely disgusting. Is he doing like private home security or? Oh no, or, no, it's for like huge corporate. Like, it's like huge, no, huge like department stores where the cops won't oh. respond. So they're just like, yeah. fuck it, we'll hire our own. So they get this badass mercenary, and he's in there yeah. just like, yeah, he doesn't. He's like, I'm not the cops. Like, you know, I, I can respond, and uh, he just sends me pictures of these like fentanyl zombies who are just i mean literal shit dropping out of like their pants ankles walking and just yeah. bumping in and it's just like dude it's it's a, it's a cancerous cell that's gonna infect um i was gonna say you, you can go for like another like i don't know 10 minutes sure yeah and then we'll wrap it up there um sure so if necessity i've had on vince hufton who's dr vince hufton houghton who is like the head of the national spy museum he wrote a good book called nuking the moon and other insane cold war plans that never got off the drawing board it's great but there's a quote from it and it's you know uh necessity is the mother of or yeah necessity is the mother of invention and desperation's the drunk uncle desperation's what we saw in the cold war where it's like now what if we did this <laughs> as we yeah. get to this point unless of course there's just a massive die-off of humanity either through natural or planned klaus uh, uh just systems running into each other and accelerating one another's collapse if we don't have that or maybe in concert with that are we going to see something the, the desperation are we going to see something is it are the are the world's resources pooled into the ITER, ITER, the, the the that collaborative fusion project? Are we going to see? Are we going to just be forced to make the conventional fission reactors work? Is there going to be just something, or is this going to hasten the departure uh, from the planet from either the elite? Oh, or it'll the be desperate? both. Yeah. Well, I don't think it'll hasten our departure from the planet for other worlds. I don't believe for a moment we're going to be colonizing Mars the elite uh, you know that's absurd it just ain't gonna happen it's another one of those kind of wishful you know uh, fairy tales that's uh not worth even talking about that's kind of my logic is like for a while i always thought i was like the elite are gonna flee the planet and go terraform mars yeah. and then i was like Forget wait it. i was like wait what's what would be easier just kill Forget off everybody about it. yeah just kill everybody here what? well that might happen you know um <laughs> yeah. uh, we haven't talked much about the uh covid19 pandemic but uh, you know it's becoming apparent, despite despite the the incredible tides of uh, propaganda yeah. and bullshit that yeah. we're uh, subjected to, it's becoming apparent that these vaccines uh, are very bad for people. They're unhealthy. They're they're hurting people. They're probably they may end up killing a lot of people. They've already killed a lot of people, but they may kill a whole lot more people. And um, you know, I don't know if you saw this. There there was. Uh, a thing that came out about four years ago that mystified a lot of people. Uh, there's a website, a company called Deagle, uh, D-E-A-G-E-L, and they're a military analysis uh, outfit. And they published a page about six years ago that uh, predicted 
what the populations and GDPs of about 116 different countries would be in the year 2025. And uh, the population for the USA was predicted to be 99 million. Okay. Uh, we're now at 330, 350, whatever, 330, 350 million. And Deagle predicted that the population would be 99 million in 2025. And they never really gave it a wholehearted, hearty, uh, robust uh, uh, kind of explication of, of how they arrived at that. Also, the GDP was like down to shit. And, um, but it did kind of make you wonder. And uh, most of the other uh, 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 members of the Western Civ Club were in equally bad shape. You know, Britain, I think, was in worse shape than we were. Uh, Germany was in terrible shape, et cetera, et cetera. They're all down. Um, the countries that weren't harmed that much were actually China, Russia, uh, a whole bunch of other kind of, you know, non-Western civ countries. But uh, that was an alarming thing. That got a lot of people thinking. And uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, how far-reaching... Uh, this pandemic uh, injury business is going to go. I've, you know, I've, earlier today I had on Dr. Malone for I think the eighth or ninth time, and I've seen his own. You've had him on nine times. I had him on four times before Rogan did, and then Rogan got all the PR. I was like, dude, people need to be Damn. talking shit about my podcast. Get me some subscribers. Yeah, I had on McCullough three. Well, times he's a before. great. He's a great figure. Yeah, he's really a brave. He's a brave. And uh, valiant and, and and intelligent dude out there. He's really fighting a good fight. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like, I was like, man, I was like, where's mine? Why can't the White House attack me? Like, no such thing as bad press. I was like, get me some subscribers. Right. I was like, I'll take the heat. I don't give a shit. I'll have yeah. It's um, but if only Jen Saki would talk talk about. If you. only she. I mean, that's my problem. Is like, I had him on last July. Like. I could need some hate speech charges. Like, let's get me wow. trending. Like, let's call me a white supremacist. See, I didn't get turned on uh, Robert Malone until I heard that podcast that he did with Brett Weinstein and Steve Kirsch. That's the one. That's where I first discovered him. Yeah, that was like the seminal. That, that was, was like the, the seminal podcast. I've now had on Kirsch and yeah. Malone not together. I need to get Weinstein. Yeah. I need to. Get that was year zero for. That was. That for was whatever they whatever that was the mis- end up calling this shit. That was the misinformation Sputnik moment where they realized, yeah they realized, exactly yeah they realized oh fuck we don't have a lid on this thing. <laughs> the, I've watched his progression. From yeah, he's, he's gotten pissed off. From I had him on July first, twenty twenty one. That was episode four ninety five. I had him on again today, Tuesday, March first, twenty twenty two, for episode seven twenty one. I've seen his own progression into. Just really, let's look at the science of what this is, what his patents are, to this full-on World Economic Forum Trusted News Initiative. This is a global lockstep program. The propaganda yeah. is, and when I see that, I move. I I love conspiracies. I don't believe all of them. I love them because I think reality is stranger than fiction, and thus I think conspiracy theories are better than any fiction book that could be written. That's why I love them. Is it's just it's this organic it's organic novels. Well, you know, Oscar Wilde said, life imitates art. Yeah. So, like, that's why I love I, – I've interviewed Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon. I've interviewed him three times. I Man. still love to believe that there are alien structures on the far side of the moon, and I don't care what anyone says. I just – I want to entertain that because the same reason people read Harry Potter. It's fun. But this conspiracy, 
I'm now looking at is less and less insane. If we have like the tippy top, looking at all these climate models, looking at food, resource scarcity, peak oil, looking at an exponential population explosion, how else would you do it? Like, let's just, let's just entertain it. How else would you do it? You can't, you know, it has to be Brave New World. It can't be 1984 because the people will rebel. I think you would introduce a, a vaccine. I think you would do something like that. And not only that, I don't think that the vaccine, now there are a lot, 24,703 deaths as of, as of today from the VAERS system, which as I, what, however that accuracy is. To me, I think it would be something a little more passive because, again, if everybody starts dropping, there's going to be widespread revolt. I think what you're probably going to see is it's a passive depopulation or population reduction, and it's because of probably the attack on the ovaries and the testes. That's what I think it will be. So it won't be me taking up arms because my mom died. It will be 20 years down the road and me not really necessarily being able to prove it's why I can't have kids or, you know, why. And I think it will be staggered. I'm sure not everyone that got the vaccine will have those problems. There will be so much plausible, plausible deniability tied in that I think as more time goes on, I don't think it's that absurd at all. Mm-hmm. And I used to think it was batshit. I go, let's stick with the moon conspiracy. Now I'm looking at it and it's like all these lines on the different charts are all kind of hitting this point where it's, we're running out of shit. Why wouldn't these yeah. ruthless people at the top, or maybe you could say, let's play, really play devil's advocate, people who are going to continue humanity. I don't believe that at all, but they are true believers. Well, the only reason I could say, you know, that I can imagine that it really wouldn't be is because, you know, if you fi- if you find out that Klaus Schwab and some gang of dudes, including Bill Gates and a bunch of other people, were actually really coordinating stuff about this, I think that they would be, you know, they'd be snuffed out and as quickly as you could say, Gulbar New Blanken. I don't know what that means. He was an arms dealer of the oh. 1980s. Oh, okay. Uh, I've, I've read... I've read The Arms of Krupp, which is a fantastic book about that arms industry in Germany. That must have been the Klaus Schwab's Klaus uncle. Schwab, his family owned family. But like I think he was connected with some probably kind of Nazi was. industry yeah, of some Absolutely. Sort. And if not, we'll speculate wildly. Fuck you, Klaus. But yeah. you know <laughs> I also think see, I've interviewed Ken Alabek, who is the head of the Soviet bioweapon program. He defected to the United States. Oh yeah, I remember him dimly, yeah. but yeah. he was yeah. He's still out. around, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. He's got he's got like a commercial job, and he's trying to find a cure for autism. He's an absolute saint. He's living a normal life. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing him. that yeah, I've interviewed him eight times. He's the sweetest. Damn. He's the sweetest guy in the world. And is um, he? Is he what? Uh, has he disclosed a lot of really interesting stuff? Well he, well, he wrote a book called Biohazard, which is pretty much the whole story. And I had him on here the first step. Uh-huh. You got to remember. You got to remember. He wanted to be a physician. And because he was so smart, he was told by the, the Soviet – he was told by the KGB that he is going to be the first deputy. He didn't want to do it. So he truly wanted – I mean he went into medicine. He wanted to, to uphold the Hippocratic Oath. So but he's a defector. He defected in 1992, yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and how he defected is still classified, which means I'm guessing they don't want to burn methods and sources. So mm-hmm. the first episode we talked about that and I really didn't want to like – push it a whole lot further because he doesn't he doesn't like he likes it as little as you or i like it he's like i don't fucking want to do this he had 
You have to leave his. Mm-hmm. You have to leave his. You know, his whole extended family. Point is, is to to argue against my own point that the vaccine rollout would be depopulation. Is that why wait on a vaccine? Why would you not just vaccinate the few individuals who wanted to survive, and then release a virulent pathogen? Why? Why? Why make maybe they just fucked up and you know they thought that COVID 19 was going to be pretty bad and it just just didn't live up to like a firecracker that didn't go off. They're just like, kind of, I mean, fuck, (laughs) it's kind of a big project and they you know they kind of messed it up, I suppose. Someone just messed up the IPO of COVID, some, 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 some intern, I don't don't know, yeah, man, it's, I don't know, but you know, uh, the you know, the sinister, uh, quality of having the vaccine be the agent of depopulation is really pretty sublime well, you, in, in in the thomas what is it the thomas burke sense of the sublime was he the guy who uh defined that i don't know it's i think maybe anyway they could clear you know, the sublime the sublime being uh uh not necessarily something that was just beautiful and wonderful but also terrifying hmm. i mean you, you, they could clear their own conscience and say you did it voluntarily. Oh, it wasn't. I meant I meant Edmund Burke, and I don't think it was Edmund Burke. I, I don't remember who said that. I'm sorry. But anyway, I forgive you. That that concept of the sublime is that you know this what we consider to be uh, like a, a you know a view of the rawness and monumental power of nature is uh, not just uh, a thing of beauty, but something that terrifies us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, to some extent, the, the, the pandemic thing is a sublime, terrifying uh, agent of civilizational destruction. Yeah. No, I mean, there is, I mean, there's a reason why, like, the most watched clips of movies are, like, the destruction scenes, the asteroid hitting, the earthquake. Oh, yeah. There is, there's something beautiful. About, supernova is a twinkling star. Yeah. It's also just... It's just disintegrating whole solar systems. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, I could see, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. I was going to say, but you could almost see someone like Klaus being able to justify it to himself by saying, we didn't kill anyone. They went and got the shot themselves. It was suicide. Well, that's a kind of an elegant way of putting it. And it's certainly, certainly gosh darn interesting. You know? Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, ironically, one of the things that's come up in the last couple of weeks, along with all of the new data from the the life insurance yeah, companies 40%. that are sh- yeah that are showing unusual uh, uh, statistical rises in the number of deaths, uh, all causes deaths between people from eighteen to sixty or so. Um, no, I've forgotten what I was going to say. Uh, Forty percent rise, forty <laughs> percent yeah. rise in deaths. Um, recent recent disclosures. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, 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 Klaus, Klaus Schwab, ele- yeah. elegant suicide versus murder. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole. But one of the elegant uh, side parts of that is that the um, insurance companies now want to claim 
that they don't have to make the payouts because people committed suicide by that. voluntarily taking the vaccines. Wasn't that, a, I think that was a ruling in France in like the last like 48 hours. I think there was something like that. But man, is that, is that wild? Or that what? is some gaslighting shit. That is, yeah. I saw someone comment on Reddit. They're like, all right, well, when that family goes and burns down that courthouse and hangs the judge, I guess you could argue that judge committed suicide by making that ruling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, and, and like, you know, along with that, I'll tell you one little tiny thing that's really bewildered me for the last 20 years or so. Yeah. You know, we've had all these school shootings, right? And they all stopped. You know, where these these pissed off kids who come in, you know, shoot up the school. stopped with the pandemic. Well, it kind of did, yeah. I'll tell you what really, really mystified me, though. Why there weren't more people going into hospital business offices and shooting them up? Was, because, yeah. because of the, the tremendous... Uh, household ruin that the hospitals rain down on people with their charge master insanity. Mm. You know? Yeah. You go in there, you know, you take your kid in with a broken arm yeah. to the emergency room and, you know, you're just a truck driver or something. And uh, six weeks later, you get a bill for $15,000. Yeah. Or, or, you know? or your wife can't afford the chemo. Yeah. Why, yeah. Would, why would you not go in there just like, fuck it, just go in there with an AR and be like, I'm, you know, I'm going to get revenge for my wife. But isn't it weird that no one's that, done that's that? never happened? Yeah. yeah I, I think it's so weird. I think it's that, that. And I also think it's insane that um, I also think it's insane that you never you've never seen it against banks. Especially yeah. after 08. How many people lost their home? You know, tell me that not one person yeah. in the nation went to Lehman Brothers or for better or worse, whether they're not responding. You're telling me some deranged guy didn't go in there with a with a backpack full of Tannerite and blow out the lobby, do some Timothy McVeigh shit. Then didn't it happen? Go. You didn't get a U-Haul and just just waltz on into and well, I guess what's your wave to the FBI now? But you didn't just drive right into Manhattan, go right up to one of those places, right on the street. Well, you know, let, let's just accept the fact that, uh, you know, living on this earth is, can be a mystifying thing full of strange mystifications and weird, unexplained, <laughs> unexplained shit. I got one more. I got one more question and it doesn't really pertain to anything, but I do think it's a very fascinating fact that we never, I guess, Christmas 2020, we saw one in Nashville, I think. But there was never once, not before 9-11 and not since, there was never once a car bomb. What the yeah. fuck is that? The easiest, I don't know, cheapest... Man. I don't understand why someone didn't walk into the, wall of, the Mall of America with a duffel bag full of, uh, uh, you know, ordnance and stuff. It, I, I, don't, I don't know why someone didn't, uh, you know, take a rocket-propelled grenade out of... Uh, out of a suitcase or something uh, on K Street in Washington and fire it over Lafayette Square. Or why wouldn't you know? 10 people get on a roof in New York and fire 10 RPGs at the Empire State Building? Exactly. It's, all that's mystifying. Uh, to me, I mean, our security can't be that good. Well, to me, it kind of, Tim Foyle hat, to me, it kind of leads to like one of two conclusions. Either the national security state is just so airtight, and I don't believe that to be true. Nah. Or the terrorist Plus it's full of morons. Yeah. Or the terrorist threat was has been fabricated for justification for invasion, which we know. And that the reason we haven't seen widespread car bombs, a, a decentralized attack that would truly cause terror, right? You see the planes hit the World Trade Center, that doesn't scare you too much in suburbia. You're like, well, they're not gonna come here. There's no skyscrapers, there's no big 
you want true terror, you would you would attack Blockbusters or McDonald's. All right. None of that to me says they've either caught every single one of these. The terrorists have never thought of it, just excluding the fact that they do it every day all throughout the Middle East. Sure. Or that the reason we've seen it is because the intelligence agencies have had no reason to do it. Well, <laughs> it's some <laughs> a sinister thought. It, it is, but it, which one is it? You, you're telling me none of them? No, not not one suicide bomber in the U.S. No, no, one in twenty years. I don't spend a whole lot of time, uh, you know, uh, wringing my brain over things like that. But but now that you've mentioned it, it's pretty gosh darn strange. But it, no, that's just a thought that's always been in my head. It's like if you really. Mm-hmm. Really, like, I get the I get nine eleven. I get the symbolism of attacking you know the heart of our finance and the heart of our military. Sure, I yeah. You, but you really want to cause widespread destruction? I mean, I guess you could say Pulse nightclub. Didn't the guy say Alu Akbar? I don't know. Yeah. Well, as always with this podcast, it wouldn't be a Tommy's podcast if we didn't end up on an FBI and NSA server. So I don't know. Wave wave to the boys, <laughs> their fans, Langley. Fort Meade, Quantico, they're all watching. They always do. Shout out, guys. Turn the lights on and off if you're watching. And uh, But, uh, yeah, Jim, thanks so much for coming on, man. I'd love to have you on again It's been sometime. a pleasure, Tommy. I'll come back anytime you want. You're a cool fucking dude, guy. I like uh, – uh, Oh, you. No, dude. No, dude. I only have on – I don't have a boss. I only have on people I want to talk to. So. Let me just remind your listeners. Yeah, that, sure. Um, they can come to my blog, which comes out every Monday and every Friday morning, Eastern Time, 10 o'clock, at uh, www.kunstler.com, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. The blog is called Clusterfuck Nation. You can probably put that on a search engine and, and find it that way. And uh, and there you go. Send me um, – and if you've got anything else that you want me to put in the description, just let me know. I'll copy and paste it all. Um but yeah, dude, I'd love to have you on again. That was fun as fuck. It's uh, as you can tell. Okay, Tommy. As you can tell, it was fun. There's, there's no direction to this. It's just it's just fire from the hip. It just whether suburban suburban building materials or questionable questionable questions that will just put me on even more servers. If it <laughs> if it wasn't the Secret Service bomb technician I had on who got a little drunk and maybe started telling people how to build explosives, if that one didn't get me. Maybe it was this one or having Malone on. They're going to kill oh, yeah. me eventually. <laughs> Whatever. It's no, they won't. Yeah. I think they're fans. Especially not if you're armed I think uh, and you can I, fight them off. I think they're fans. I like, to, I like to imagine that they're surveilling me and they're like, this podcast isn't half bad. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, like, we like this guy. Yeah. They're like, don't kill him just yet. I listened to it on the ride to work. I'm like, <laughs> once I get a, once I become a burnout, once I become like Howard Stern, then they can come put one in my head. But right now they're like, dog, I fucking listen to this. It's the only way I can get away from my bitching wife. Like, we can't kill him just yet. It's a bunch of CIA wet works guys. Like, dude, I listen to this when I take my kid to softball. Like, we can't not, we can't ice him yet. I'm driving to a hit. That's what I mean. Exactly. They're like, dude, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with the Mossad and we're going to take out some sheik in Dubai. They're like, I, I love this one. I can't. We'll kill him in time. And that's maybe what it is. So as long as I keep putting out good episodes, I think they're inclined not to kill me. And I also like to imagine that it's a sort of protection for my guests. Because they're like, well, we were going to take out Jim, but they had chemistry, man. So, like, fuck, we can't kill him yet either. <laughs> I like to, that's my own deluded ego. It's like, I'm saving lives by having people on here. I'm losing my mind. Jim, 
thanks for coming on, man. I'll email you or text you the episode when it's up. Please share it around. Everybody listening, please go check out his blog. And uh, yeah, stay safe out Okay, we will ride again. Fuck yeah, man. Thank you so much. God bless. Okay. God bless everybody. Recording Take care. stopped. Thanks so much, buddy.